Hey, this is Andre Butler, pastor of Faith Experience Church. You're listening to the Faith Experience Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this message helps you engage your faith and experience the future God has for you. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Last Days. Has anybody enjoyed our Last Days series? Anybody learning anything during this series? Yeah, this is a good old-fashioned Bible teaching series, and sometimes we need that. Sometimes we just need to be taught what's in this book because it will change our lives forever. And of course, as we've said for the last couple of weeks now, uh, there's so many crazy things happening in the world, uh, from COVID, of course, to racial unrest, to a decrease in morality. There's natural disasters, there's war, there's economic turmoil. There's so many things uh, that are happening that seem to indicate that we are living in what the Bible calls the last days. In fact, we've found through Scripture, through studying Scripture, that we're in the last of the last days. And so we've learned that the Bible tells us a couple of things about this time, that when these type of events happen that we read about in the news almost every day, we need to kind of look up because it, that lets us know we're closer to the return of Jesus than we've ever been. We've learned that His return uh, the rapture, as we often call it, is coming soon. And then uh, we recognize that we really can't understand the last days like we should without understanding the book of Revelation. So the last couple of weeks, we've actually been diving into that book. We gave you five troops, truths that will help you understand Revelation. I want to give those to you again in case this is your first time with us. The first is that the central theme is the revealing of Jesus. He is the star of the book. The second is that believers have a right to understand Revelation. Of course, it's not called the book of hidden meanings. It's called the book of Revelation. God wants to reveal these things to your heart and your mind. The third is that Revelation gives parallel accounts of events on earth and in heaven. So you'll literally see that the scene will shift, and sometimes we'll be in heaven in Revelation, and then sometimes we'll be in earth in Revelation. We learned that Revelation has a number of informational chapters. And lastly, we learned that Revelation tells of events of the past, the present, and the future. So last couple of weeks, we focused on Revelation 1. We learned that we need to stick with God no matter what's happening in our lives. Last week, we learned that we are overcomers. We looked at the seven letters that Jesus had John send to the seven churches, and we got seven lessons from those letters. Those lessons were that we need to keep Jesus as our first love. Anybody still keeping Jesus as your first love? Yeah. We learned that we should be faithful to God no matter what, that we should not tolerate false doctrine, false teaching, that we will reap what we sow, that we should truly come back to God. Some of us have you know, some people have said they're, they're, they're believers, but they really aren't. So we should come back to God. And then lastly, that we should keep the faith. No matter what's going on, we should continue to believe God, continue to do the right things, because eventually we're going to receive the right results. We then stopped at that seventh letter. So I want to start there today in Revelation uh, chapter 3 once again. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice this is once again giving different titles of Jesus, uh, highlighting dis different attributes of him. And we've said that in every letter. You'll see that. Well, he, this is what Jesus says to this particular church. I know your works. You notice he didn't say, I know your heart. Now, of course, he does know our hearts. He cares about our hearts. But in every letter, he said to them, I know your works. Because ultimately, what matters is what you do, not just what you intended to do. Well, thank you for the zero amens I received on that point. Amen. Amen. Would anybody agree with that? You know, so, so he's saying, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
Now notice Jesus says cold or hot three different times. And what he's referring to is their spiritual temperature. Turn to the neighbor and ask them, what's your spiritual temperature? Think about that. He's talking about your spirit. Are you cold or are you hot? Or are you lukewarm? And what he's telling us here is, I would rather you be cold, far from me, than to be someone that says you're close to me, but really isn't. And maybe that's because when you're far from him, maybe because you really haven't been exposed to him yet. You know, you haven't, had, you haven't tasted of the things of God yet. So that's why you're far from him. But when you have known him and you have tasted of the good things of God, and yet you're still kind of like, meh, about God. Well, he's like, I'll spit that. I'll spit you out of my mouth. That sounds like he uh, has some very strong emotions about lukewarm Christianity. It sounds like it disgusts him. And, you know, I don't particularly drink coffee, but I can imagine that for all the coffee drinkers in here that you'd rather have it hot than lukewarm. I do eat a lot of food, and I can tell you I like hot chicken rather than lukewarm chicken. Right? I mean, there's a difference between eating something when it's hot and ready. When I was in Georgia, and they have this here now too, but when I lived in Georgia, you know, Krispy Kreme was extremely popular. And when that red light was on, it would stop traffic. When I first moved there, I didn't get it. But once it actually actually had some, I understood. I was stopping in the middle of the road. Whoa, is that the red light? You know, because when it's hot, whoo, it is good. It melts in your mouth. And God is saying, here, man, I'd rather you be hot for me on fire or even just cold, and I got some work to do, than for you to be somebody that's fake. For you to be somebody that says, I'm a Christian, I love God, and I go to church. Or nowadays, I'm religious, I just don't go to church. Well, you're lukewarm. You might be cold. He says, man, I spit that out of my mouth. Well, let's keep reading. What caused them to be this way? Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What's going on here? This was a financially prosperous church. This was, this was a church full of well-off people. And they made the mistake of mistaking gain for godliness. You know, 1 Timothy 6 gives us a warning about wealth. And, you know, a lot of times you'll find people on one side of the spectrum or the other. Either God doesn't want you to have wealth at all, or God wants you to have wealth. And getting wealth is, is, is if you get wealth, then that means you're spiritual. Well, no. You know, just like everything else, the answer is usually in the middle. And yes, God wants you wealthy, but that is not the, the goal of your life as a Christian. God wants to get it to you so God can get it through you. God wants you blessed. You can enjoy your life. If you live right before God, you're going to see increase in your life, but that is not your goal in life. Christianity is not about your prosperity. Even though God wants you to prosper, it's about your relationship with him. Prosperity is just a tool right? It's like having a car and, and, and deciding to marry your car. You know, and there are silly people who have done that nowadays, right? They got that marrying everything. People mar I've seen people marry themselves. And that shouldn't surprise you in the day, day and age we live in. You know, and it's kind of silly. You got this car and it's this, I, you know, I finally got this Tesla. I've wanted this Tesla my whole life. And let's, let's go before the preacher and get married. No, wait a minute. Maybe the person that you have in the car with you in the Tesla is the one that should get your attention more than the Tesla, your wife, your husband. And that's what we do. We want to, you know, we want to get so caught up in the things we have that we forget about the one who gave us the things. We forget about the relationship we're supposed to have with him and that we're supposed to be on fire for him. We shouldn't be always talking about the car or the house or the purse or the dress. We should be talking about the one that loved us so much that he allowed his blood to be shed for us that gave us a new life in him. And so it's a challenge that honestly we deal with in our country. 
where people would never say money is my God, but money actually is your God. Now, if God were to say to you, and here's a great test of it, if God were to say to you, give it away, you wouldn't. Because when it's all said and done, you care more about that possession than you do about obeying God. I'm already spending more time on this than I plan to, but if you get into uh, Mark chapter 10, you'll find a story that illustrates this. There was this young man that came running to Jesus, and he said, you know, hey, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the Ten Commandments, because under, in that time, that was before Jesus had died and rose again, so they were still living under the old covenant. He says, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. And he's telling them, and the man interrupts him, I've been doing that since my youth. And Jesus says, all right. He looks at him, he loves him. He says, one thing you're lacking, take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor, and come follow me. And this man who came running to Jesus walked away from him over his money. He couldn't pass the money test because he had plenty of possessions. And he thought God was trying to take something from him when Jesus was giving him something invaluable salvation. And Jesus went on to say, anybody that would do that for me, they would get a hundredfold return in this life. So it's not like Jesus was saying, live your life in poverty. He was just saying, give what you have now. Show me that you love me more than what you have. Make sure I'm your God instead of those things. And then follow me, and then you'll find I'll bring all those things back to you, but it'll be in their right place. One reason why a lot of Christians struggle financially isn't even because they're not tired. Well, I'll say it this way, is because they have money in the wrong place in their hearts. And God knows that if he gave you the money, it would destroy you. Instead of committing adultery in the Motel 6, you just do it in a Rich Carlton. Instead of buying weed, you find a way to buy something a little bit stronger. Instead of coming to church on Sunday morning because things are going bad, you find yourself out on the beach somewhere every Sunday because things are going so well. And so, you know, prosperity destroys the fool. God knows that. He's not going to give money to you while you're still a fool. Oh, y'all, y'all, happy, y'all. Happy birthday, Pat. Now y'all like, please, Pastor, shut up. Come on, you got to recognize who's supposed to be God here. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart, him or it? And so this is where, you know, I always know, and, and this is one reason why we've always kind of judged along these lines, and I haven't been as harsh with it as maybe I could be because we've been a younger church, but I find there are certain things that lets me know when somebody is really serious about God, and one of them is if they're a tither. Um, and you say, oh, yeah, but it's hard for me to do. It's hard for me to do, too. There's a bunch in the room who, who tithe now, and they all had the same test. Same test. It's like everybody taking the ACT. Everybody had the same test. Tithing did not make sense. On paper, I don't need to take this money and put this here. I need to take this money and use this here. Lord, give me extra so I can take care of this and tithe. And God says, no, take the 10% of what I I already gave you. Show me I'm your God and then I'll give you extra. So you sit here and you have a bit of a standoff. Give me more, God. God says, honor me. Give me more. And God says, well, first honor me. Give it to me first, God. And God says, honor me. If you give it to me first, God, then I'll honor you. God says, no, honor me. Then I'll give it to you. So we find out who's your God. Do you love your money more than your God or do you love your God more than your money? I didn't plan to spend that much time on that, but, and that's really harder when things are tough, like now. And you're looking like, hey, guy, have you seen the gas prices? You're doing all right. There ain't no recession in heaven. Gas prices aren't up. Bread isn't up. You can just make bread, Jesus. My bread costs a lot of money. So, Lord, right now, I'm I'm, I'm going to hold on a little something, something, and then later on, I'll make it up to you. God's like, "Mm mm-hmm. You know where you are by what you do. In fact, we keep reading here, and he says, once again, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, I do not know that you, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
So because they were financially prosperous, they thought they were godly. And God was saying, actually, if you could see yourself spiritually, you find out that you are the complete opposite. You're wretched. That's a tough word. You're miserable. You think you're rich because you got money, but you're spiritually poor. You think you see because you, you're doing well, but you actually are blind. You think you're clothed because you got some nice clothes, but you're actually spiritually naked. I really believe as I read this that this is another one of those churches that is really far from God. And we, we looked at one last week that was just, he was like, your name's about to get blotted out right? And this to me is another one that's very similar to that, where he's saying, man, you know, you guys are in a horrible place. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments, that means they didn't have them. That's why I said they were really far from God, that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he's telling them, hey, you, you need to come back to me. That's bottom line. You need to come back to me fully. You need to be on fire for me again. In fact, let me read to you Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, because I think this will help us with what, help get our arms around exactly what Jesus expects of us. It says, never lag in zeal and an earnest endeavor. Romans 12, 11, amplified, Bob. I'm not sure if you guys have this or not. Uh, but it says, be aglow and burning with the Spirit, serving the Lord. Be aglow and burning with the Spirit. Be aglow, be burning with the Spirit. That sounds like hot to me. I'd rather you be cold or hot. He's really saying you should be hot for me. You should be burning in the Spirit. Burn on fire for God. And one of the ways I know you're on fire for God is that you are serving the Lord. If you aren't serving, you're not on fire. And I don't mean just in your church, although that's a pretty good indication. But if you aren't serving the Lord, you're not serving your community. You're not actually making a mark in one way or the other for God on a consistent basis. You're not on fire for God. You're not. And you either are or you aren't. It's like your food is either hot or it's not. You're either on fire or you're not. When you're on fire, you will find a way to do something. It's like when you're in love. We, talk, we talked about the whole first love thing last week. When you're in love, you will find a way to spend time with that person. Especially when it's brand new. You'll jump on a plane. You'll stay up to 3, 4, 5 in the morning. You'll operate the next couple of days with no sleep. Come on now, there's all kinds of stuff you do because you're in love, because you're on fire for them. When you're on fire for God, you don't let little stuff get in the way of helping him. And that's what he's saying, man. I expect you to be on fire for me. I expect you to love me. I expect you to serve me. I expect you to give for me. I expect you to be excited about me. That's what I want from you. Either do that or just get away from me. Either be cold or hot, but don't give me this mess in the middle. I'll spit that out. Are you on fire for God? And if you're sitting there saying, ooh, this is tough. This is, this is hitting me right now. You know what? The good news is you can always turn up the temperature. You can turn up the temperature anytime you decide to. Jesus said, and actually in James chapter 4, he used James to say, draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. Just get closer to God. Spend more time in His presence. Spend more time in His Word. On purpose, step out and find a way to serve. On purpose, go out and just give because God tells you to give. Find somebody that needs something and just bless them. Just say, God, I did it because I love you. Pray for people. Pray because you love God. One of the things I'm really, I'm really focusing on right now with our church is emphasizing prayer. We need to pray more. We must be a praying church. So we've been changing how we do our experiences because we need to use the power God has given us to change things the way He wants it, the way He wants them to be. And when you're on fire for God, there's no way on earth you're going to get up and not pray. Open your Bible. When you're on fire, you want it, man. And that's what He expects of us to be on fire. So he ends it by saying, going back to Revelation, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. 
Because I love you, I'm going to tell you where you're wrong. Because I love you, I'm going to tell you how to get right. And so then he says, so therefore be zealous. Jump on this thing right now. Turn the temperature up right now. Say, you know what? I'm choosing to be on fire for God more than anything else and repent. And behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Interesting opening of scripture because there's a couple things you can get from this. Number one, it implies that although this church had his name on it, Jesus was standing outside the church saying, I'm knocking, will y'all let me in? But number two, it also is a very personal thing and that he's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He's saying, if you'll just let me in, I'll sup with you. We'll have covenant together and you're going to see that you will be an overcomer. And he ends up by saying, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We can see from that statement once again that this doesn't just apply to those churches. It applies to us today. So lesson number seven is to be on fire for God. Turn to them and tell them, be on fire for God. Somebody turn to somebody and tell them, turn up. <laughs> it's time to turn up for God. If there's any time in your life that you need to do it, it's right now. When things get crazy in the world, is definitely when you need to get closer to God. And a lot of times what's happening is that things are getting crazy in our lives, and that's when we really need to get closer to God. You know, and so I made a commitment myself. I was looking at it uh, yesterday, today, one of these days, uh, top of the year. I said, you know what, I have one, just one New Year's resolution, and that is this year I was going to be the most solid, Christian that I'd ever been. I didn't have any other, it was simply that I was going to this year be the most solid, be, this would be the most spiritual, the best spiritual year I ever had in my life. And what I found is that that's needed right now. We ought to be praying more. We ought to be reading. When you, when you feel like you don't know what to do and you just can't take anymore, and, and you're just tired, and, and, and you just, you just, and you start thinking about heaven because you're like, I just, Jesus, come back right now. Just, I'm just please. What, what do you do? You, you, you can't just give up. You can't, you know, you can't take a vacation from yourself. Anybody notice that? Hey, I, mean, I don't care where you go. You go sit on a beach in Hawaii, you still with you. What do you do? All you can do. It's pressing to God. Sometimes I've gotten up and prayed until I felt better. Am I the only one that's ever been there? I just prayed until, I mean, I had some time. I was like, I'm going to pray this amount of time. And after that hour, hour, so I'm like, I don't feel no better. I'm just going to. When the joy of the Lord started bubbling up on the inside of me and I don't feel like, you know, the world is ending, then I'll start praying. Getting the word, listen to messages and, and enjoy it. And sometimes that is what gets you from day to day until God turns things around and your life is a little bit more like you want it to be. You need to be on fire for God now more than ever. All right, Revelation chapter 4. You all right? Let's go to chapter 4, and we won't spend a ton of time on these two chapters, but the Remember that what we, one of the things we said about Revelation is that it gives parallel accounts of events on earth and in heaven. So as we said before, just like in any television show you may watch, the scene shifts from time to time. So you may be watching, you, know, you all know I've loved Star Wars my whole life. So, you know, in Star Wars, one minute you see Luke Skywalker on Dagobah, and the next minute you see Han Solo in, a, in outer space, and it goes from back, back and forth, right? And here, this is what happens in, in Revelation. You'll see, we'll see John on earth, and then we'll see heaven, and then we'll go back to earth, and then we'll see heaven, right? So in chapter 4, we switch to heaven. We know that John was on earth. He was on the island of Patmos, and he was in the spirit on the Lord's day seeking God, even though he had been going through some crazy things when Jesus appeared to him. And then it's like he has either a, a, a second faith experience 
or this experience is just a continuation of what we already read. In verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So that implies he looked up. And when he looked up, he literally saw a door, an open door in heaven. Anybody glad that God's given an open door to all of us? If you've not followed Jesus, the door is open for you today too. You just got to say yes. He said, man, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. If you look at other translations, what it's saying is that I'm here, I heard the same voice I heard, you know, at the beginning of this book. Same voice, it was loud like a trumpet, and it said, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So notice that he hears this voice, and the voice says, come on up to heaven. And in verse 2, he says, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. So he was, he was given an invitation, and one minute he's, he's on the island of Patmos, and the next minute he's in heaven, immediately. That sounds a lot like how the Bible describes the rapture. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Isn't that what the Bible says? You know, we've said it before. You know, if you think you're going to get right before the, in the moments of the rapture, you think that, you know, you can live wrong and then you have a split second to get right with God. By the time you get re out of your mouth, it's too late. You're like, I repent, Lord. And God be like, that's great, but you're stuck down here now. Right? It's so fast. It's the speed of light. And John was saying, one minute I'm on earth, and the next minute I'm standing in the throne room immediately. So John actually had an experience that's very similar to the one we're going to have where, where we're going to be caught up in the air and we're going to meet Jesus there, and then we're going to find ourselves in the throne room as well. This is called the rapture, right? So John was one of many in the Bible that were raptured. There's actually about seven raptures in the Bible. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read another one. Paul is talking. He says this. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. The first heaven is the atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. The third heaven is the place where God dwells. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise, talking about heaven, and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Well, who was Paul talking about? Himself. And Paul, 14 years before this particular letter, was literally caught up to heaven himself, and he, he had the opportunity to hear some things there that, you know, of course, changed him. And so he's talking about that. So when you start going throughout the Scripture, you'll find there are many times where God will catch people up to heaven. And even in our day and age, there are some men and women of God that have had that same experience. And you test everything. When people say that God did something, you look, pull a Bible out and say, is it consistent with the Bible? You pay attention to the person. The Bible says you will know them by their fruits. So they think that they say they've gone to heaven, but you look at their life and they live like they're from hell. You probably didn't have an experience going to heaven. I don't know what you were smoking that day, but anyway. So bottom line is, John is caught up to heaven. And notice what he sees going back to Revelation 4, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Well, what's he saying? You know, in Ezekiel chapter 1, you read almost the exact same description. And the description is about God. So what he's talking about is he's literally in the throne room, seeing the throne of the Almighty God. And when he looks at God, we don't know that he can see his face. It, it, it reads like he can see maybe from the waist down. And in Ezekiel, the same thing is said. You can see from his loins down a little bit up. And, and he looks like a, 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 a jewel, a gem. His skin is like a gem. And 
He says there's a rainbow around the throne that's like almost an emerald rainbow. So here is the proper use of a rainbow. God created, he used a rainbow in the book of Genesis as a reminder of the covenant he made with mankind. And, and, and the rainbow is still used today, still in front of God's presence in the literal throne room. And the way God works, usually when he uses something one way in the past, he continues to use it that way in the future. It's probably still a reminder of the covenant he, he made with man to never destroy the earth again with a flood. So this is what John sees. He is up in the throne room looking at God himself who is unreal to look at with, the, with this rainbow around the throne. And don't forget, God said to him, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So he's being taken to heaven so he can see the future particularly the future of what's going to happen in heaven. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So you picture this huge throne in the middle of this massive room. You're going to see how massive it is in a few moments. And around this throne is 24 other thrones. Why 24? Well, we know that God often used the number 12, right? You have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. Uh, we would be speculating to say who is sitting on, that on those thrones. We do know that Jesus said to the apostles that in this time frame, they would be sitting on thrones judging the nation of Israel. So it's not a stretch. It wouldn't be a total surprise when we walk in the throne room that we don't see Peter and Matthew and John sitting on some of those thrones. But we don't have evidence of that. All we know is that there are 24 thrones around the throne, and there are 24 elders. An elder is somebody who God chooses to represent him and to minister to his people. So we know there are 24 elders who, who are there as representatives of God, as ministers of, of God. It's possible they are going to be ministry gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, because that's what elders are. When you see the word elders elsewhere in the New Testament, it's referring to ministry gifts. Listen, I see, I see these elders, they got white robes, they have crowns of gold on their head. The crowns are, of course, the white robes we learn mean salvation. You're, you're white, you're clean before God. There's no sin in your life. The crowns of gold, the type of crowns that are given here are, are crowns of victory. When there was a victory back in, in this time frame, you know, they, they would literally sew together a crown and put it on, around people's heads as, as, as a signet of victory. Similar to, you know, we just had the Golden State Warriors win the NBA championship, and what you'll receive if you're a winner of the NBA championship is a championship ring. So that ring indicates that I'm a champion. Well, that what they did was they gave him a crown. So these 24 elders all have these crowns of gold on their head. And how many times in the New Testament do we see mentions of crowns? Paul says, there's waiting for me a crown in heaven. There's a number of times. And so we see that as on these guys. They're, they're wearing these crowns. If we were to go to chapter 5 for a second, in verse 10, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. It says, now when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God. By your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So there's any question that these 24 elders are people that they're earthlings, we just answered it. Because they're saying, Jesus, you redeemed us by your blood. And because of that, we're now kings and priests to God. 
and we will reign on earth with you. Well, isn't that what the Bible says about every believer? If we were to go back to chapter 1, when we did a couple of weeks ago, we read that the Bible says about anyone that's followed Jesus that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He bought you with his blood. You are made a king and a priest unto God right now. You will reign with him forever. So we now know about these 24 elders, and that's what I was just focusing on for a moment, that they are believers just like us. But they also are in this position where they're representative of God and really representative of the church. Okay, so we're going back to Revelation 4, verse, verse 5 again. We're just looking at John's experience in heaven for a second. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Can you imagine being in this, this room? And, you know, if, if lightning strikes down the street, some of us are going to jump. Boom, we all, ooh, thunder, boom, 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 Whenever that happens, we're like, man, we tell somebody next day, did you hear that? Did you feel that thunder yesterday? Man, what a, what a storm we had. Voices, this is all coming from this throne, from the throne right now. Heaven is loud. If you ever come to the church and say, man, that church is too loud for me, well, you ain't ready for heaven yet. I'm messing with you. Heaven is loud, man. You're looking at this huge throne. You see God sitting on there. You see these elders around it, and it's choom, lightning, and boom, thunder. And then these voices, you hear all these voices. This is what's going on when John gets there. Then seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. So in front of the throne, there's seven lamps of fire. What is that about? You notice Revelation is full of symbolism. These seven lamps are the seven spirits of God, or as many translations say, they're the sevenfold Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is often described as fire. So this is literally the Holy Spirit, just the sevenfold aspect of him. If you look at what the Bible says about the anointing that was on Jesus in Isaiah 11, I won't take you there for time's sake, it talks about the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, the spirit of might. In other words, there were seven aspects to the Holy Spirit on Jesus. So very simply, what this is, it represents is the Holy Spirit. Now you may say, wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit was on earth. Well, first of all, don't forget God is omniscient. He can be everywhere at the same time. Second of all, as we're about to see here, this event that John is seeing in the future, because this is not what's happening in heaven even now. This is something that's going to happen. This is an event that happens when the Holy Spirit finishes a phase of his assignment. What do you mean by that? Notice the next thing that's said. And before the throne, there was a sea of what? A sea of what? Glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. Let me read to you something that Hilton Sutton said. He's a man who got used to teach this topic for decades. In Scripture, a description of a mass of people accompanies the word sea whenever it is used without reference to the name or location of an existing body of water. So the crystal sea is a great company of people standing before the throne of God. So when the Bible says there was a sea of glass like crystal, what it's actually referring to is a vast number of people. And the Bible, of course, the word crystal is used because crystal is the only substance on earth in which you cannot hide flaws. And the Bible says about Jesus and the church. In fact, Ephesians 5.26, it says he, that Jesus came that he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So notice that the church is described at the time of the rapture as holy and without blemish. John goes in the future, he goes up to heaven, but he's seeing the heaven in the future, 
And what he sees is a church that is crystal clear, without blemish, standing before the throne of God. And what you can recognize here, we'll see this again in a moment, is that we're looking at the moments after the rapture. That's what this is. Jesus comes, says, come up here. We all go up and fly on our Superman poles. We meet up in the air with Jesus, and the very next thing he does is takes us all to the throne room. And we all arrive in the throne room, and we see the throne. And we see the Father. And we see the elders. And we see the lightning and the thunder. And we hear the voices. And I don't know about you, but I'm having my hands raised. I'll probably be on my face like, first of all, I'm so glad I made it. Thank you, Jesus, because that could be in an entirely different place than this one. But also, I mean, how awesome, how awesome is this room, this place? And that's not all we'll see. If you keep reading, he says here, and, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Four creatures whose bodies in the front and the back are full of eyes. It seems like they're almost guardians to the throne because they can see you whatever direction you're coming from. But that's not all. Verse 7 says, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, if you go to Ezekiel, you'll find almost the exact same description of a different set of angels. This is a type of angel. And you'll notice one represents a lion. Well, you know, we do see a lot of Scripture about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, you know, there's some things there. One looks like a man. We see some Scripture about that. He's the son of man. One looks like a, a, a flying eagle. The Bible talks about us mounting up with wings as eagles, right? One looks like a calf. You know, but there, there is no clear. This is one of those unknowns of Revelation. There's a couple of things we're going to have to get to heaven and say, God, exactly what did that mean? And it's one of those where you can speculate, but speculation is dangerous. And there's so much that we do know, there's no point in getting caught up and speculating about what we don't know. What we do know is that these four creatures are in, are in the middle and around the throne. And if we keep reading, it says the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. So even the wings had eyes in them. And they rest not day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So these creatures literally spent all of their existence praising God, saying, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, God. You're holy. You're the Lord God Almighty. Holy are you, God. Holy are you, God. Holy are you, God. And they're not just doing it just to do it. Verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their, th their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So these four creatures don't just don't fly around the throne saying holy, these four creatures are actually praise and worship leaders. Come on now. They're actually cheerleaders of God. They basically kick it off. They're up here like the FX worship team saying holy, holy, holy. So the four and twenty elders would say, yeah, you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. And the church would say, yeah, he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. We're going to see in a moment. And the angels will say, yeah, he's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Because he is worthy. And there's a theme you can see in this room. There's a theme to what's being said that God is a worthy God. The word worthy means deserving. It means that, that he, he's do this. 
that this is right for him to receive this. He is that awesome. He is that good so that the room should be set up that all of eternity could stop and look at him and give him glory. And one of the reasons why is what we read in verse 11, because you created all things. God created this universe. I was outside the other day and I'm just looking at the sky and I'm thinking about how God created all of this. And I, and I can only see a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of it. How foolish it is to, to pretend that this incredibly detailed universe just happened. I was literally thinking, how can someone convince themselves that all of this is just became? That's not, and then they say, well, science. That's not science. People throwing around the, around the word science like crazy. Don't know what it is anymore. But even science would say, if something exists, if there is a creation, there must be a creator. We get that. Painting, painter, painter. Automobile, automobile manufacturer. Come on, we even look at children. Children, where the daddy? Right? Everything came here by design. And so to look at the, look at the sky in the morning and, and see the blue, and we got blue skies right now, hallelujah, and see the sun and, 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 and go outside without a coat on and, and, and feel the heat and kill a mosquito and, and all of that, and then kind of go, well, it's all just kind of cane into me. No, 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 no. Someone was brilliant enough and took the time necessary to design that mosquito, to give it a purpose, and that bee that we can't stand, and those flowers that we do like to smell, and that food that we love to eat, and that air that we breathe, and the eyes that we see through, and the ability for all of us to have to touch things. And he created all of us with different, different fingerprints, and, 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 and yet, Look at, to look at the sky and the stars and, and the sun and the moon. And, oh, wait a minute, you mean that there's more beyond that? Yeah, there's the Milky Way, and then there's other galaxies, and then there's other galaxies, and the galaxy is still expanding at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. All of this is happening right now. It was all created by the one that's sitting on the throne. He is worthy of us saying, you are awesome. And notice, our purpose is found in that scripture. For his pleasure, we were created. What on earth am I here for? To please God. I'm here to please God. And this isn't, isn't the best example, but we've all heard stories of this. Or we've seen TV shows and movies of somebody creating a robot to be their personal assistant. The robot was created to help them. You were created by God to please Him. You're created to please Him. That's why you exist. That's why you will never feel fulfilled just doing your own thing. You, you will never, you're not operating according to your programming. You were, you were created and programmed to please the Almighty God. And if you live your life just pleasing yourself, you can enjoy some things, but there's something in here that's going to say that this is wrong, this doesn't fit, this is not why I'm here. I, I, you'll, you'll never find the fulfillment you need separate from your God-given programming. You can smoke all you want, drink all you want, party all you want, sleep with the whole city of Detroit. You can do all of it. You can make billions, but if you aren't living your life pleasing God, you just won't be happy. Because when you're pleasing Him is when He's also pleasing you. That's how this works. You make Him happy, He makes you happy, and rest assured there's plenty of Scripture that shows God wants you happy. We're going to preach on that next year. Happy is the man. But you don't get to be happy without pleasing God.
So this whole room is, it, I saw something yesterday since we're, I was thinking about basketball. I happened to just see on Instagram, and it was uh, Steph Curry, the basketball player, and I guess he went to a game with his son, and he's just sitting there, and the crowd just starts chanting, MVP, MVP, MVP. Why do they do that? Because he just won the championship and was the MVP. He earned it. So it was a moment where they were all giving glory and honor to the finals MVP. And God has done so much more. If they can shout MVP, we can shout worthy, worthy, worthy is the creator of the universe. Worthy is almighty God. And he's not the only one. Chapter 5, verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy, there it is again, who's deserving to open the scroll and to loose its seals. There's this book in the Father's hand, and, and, and he's saying, who can open that book? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. Nobody was worthy. So I wept much because no one was found worthy, there is again, to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and the loose of seven seals, New Living Translation says that he has won the victory. Oh, that sounds familiar. And he is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. So he, he's the only one that can do this. You know, being a, a Marvel fan, I immediately thought of Thor's hammer. Nobody can grab Thor's hammer but Thor. Nobody could pick it up but Thor until Captain America did. But anyway, nobody could do it until Thor. Nobody was worthy. I grew up watching movies like, you know, Sword in the Stone, and, and it was only King Arthur that could pull the sword out of the stone. Well, those are all messianic. You find out most of our movies, most of our stories that we have heard and watched and we love, they all are, the vast majority of them are messianic. They're all, they're all basically different ways of telling this story about the one who is worthy to open this book, the one who is worthy to open the seals, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. I just want you to notice that this lamb who is Jesus is standing. Why is that important? Well, look at Acts chapter 2 for a moment, verse 34. Notice what's prophesied about him. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So when Jesus rose again and he, he came, he, he taught for 40 days, he went up into heaven, he went and he sat down. He sat down waiting for God to kick the devils behind on earth. Guess who God uses to do that? The church. Jesus said himself, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So he's literally told him, sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. I'm going to put them under your feet using the church that you gave birth to. So Jesus is sitting here, and, and right now, he's, spiritually, his, authority, his position is one where he is seated, waiting for us to get the job done, but here he's standing again. What's happened? Well, we already said it. The church finished his job. The rapture's already happened. He's come and received us in the clouds and brought us to the throne room so we could see this moment. And then he stands there as the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. The Bible said he had seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is the number of completeness. And once again, this is the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit was on the lamb. That's why he's called the anointed or the Christ. Because Christ simply means the anointed one. So this is Jesus. Verse 5. 
Then he came and took the scroll, the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Worship is an act of prostrating yourself. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If you're saying, God, are you hearing my prayers? God, my prayers getting past the, the, the ceiling. Yeah, they're in the throne room. They waft up as, a, as, a, as incense to him. You see it in Revelation chapter 8. You even see it in Acts chapter 10. Every prayer you pray to God comes up before God. It gets up into his nostrils. He heard your prayer, and he's already said yes. You haven't forgotten one prayer you prayed or one seed you sown. That's for somebody in here. And they sang a new song saying, you are, what's the word? Worthy. Who's worthy? Jesus. To take the scroll, to open his seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. He's worthy too. That's what we're seeing here. We read in chapter 4 how they're bowing down before God the Father and they're saying, you're worthy because you created all things. But now Jesus shows up and they say, you deserve honor too. You're deserving too. You came into this earth as a babe. You lived on this planet without sin. You preached the word of God to us and taught us the way to heaven. Then you let your own blood be shed and washed away all of our sins. You rose again and gave us everlasting life. You took us who were the worst of the earth and made us the kings of the earth. We're kings and priests unto God and we will reign forever and ever all because of you. You are worthy, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of glory and you're worthy of honor and you're worthy of every breath we breathe being breathed being breathed giving glory and honor unto you you are the king of kings and the lord of lords you are the alpha and the omega the first and the last you are the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world worthy are you jesus worthy are you jesus it's one reason why when we get up in the morning, you ought to take some time every single day just to say thank you to the Father and thank you to the Son and thank you to the Holy Spirit. And you ought to take some time to worship them and let them know you're worthy of glory and you're worthy of honor and you're worthy of all praise. You're the MVP of the universe and we'll worship you all the days of eternity. And just know, you are the only ones doing that. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, 100 billion angels. 100 billion. How big is this room? When we get there that day and we're standing before the throne, we're going to see the throne, God sitting on the throne, the elders on their thrones, the beast around them. We'll see Jesus, the lamb, and then around all of us will be 100 billion angels. They don't have any work to do at that moment. Their job right now is to serve you. Hebrews 1 tells us they are here to minister on our behalf. Matthew shows us every child on this planet has an angel assigned to them. Well, in that moment, the church will be in heaven. They will have finished their job. They get to show up for church. They get to show up, and what are they going to do? They're going to say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are as in the sea, and all that are in them are heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four and 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever 
and ever. I think we need to take a moment and join into this. Come on, stand your feet just for a moment. Lift your hands toward heaven. And let's just worship you. We worship you, almighty God. For you are worthy of all glory and honor. You're worthy of all power. For you created all things. You see the end from the beginning. You are the almighty God the Most High God. And Jesus, we honor you as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the King of all kings. You came and you redeemed us. You set us free from what Satan was doing in our lives. So many of us today are saved. We're children of God. We're kings and priests unto God. Heaven is our home because of you. Thank you for tuning in to another Faith Experience Podcast. Remember, God has a future for you.